This is Guns and Butter. Proxy war is beginning to now tell on the health of the nation, and perhaps Pakistan will now, uh, as a result of the late flood, may even drift towards a revolution on the style of Iran, because people are sick and fed up with the corruption of the government, with the way the government is siding with the aggressors. Now, Americans are viewed as aggressors, and latest surveys have said that 68% Pakistanis downright hate America. and they consider them the enemies of Pakistan that's a very large figure then this is something to be worried about because we are closest ally of america doing the dirty work for them paying a huge price for them and yet people of pakistan hate them that means if this uh, dichotomy or if this contradiction continues to persist then a time will eventually come when there will be eruption a social eruption i'm bonnie faulkner today on guns and butter General Hamid Ghul. Today's show: Afghanistan, Pakistan, Imbroglio. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army. At the height of his military career, it was expected that he would be promoted to the position of Chief of the Army Staff, but due to political pressures from abroad, he was not selected, and as a result, he resigned from the army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence (ISI) from 1987 to 1989 during the fateful period of Afghan jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. General Ghul faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad. protesting against attempts to dismiss Chief Justice Chowdhury. He has written hundreds of columns mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. General Hamid Ghul, welcome. Thank you. As a career military officer and also as the former head of Pakistan's intelligence agency ISI, you are familiar Uh, with military and intelligence matters, obviously, you were an outspoken critic of the official U.S. explanation of September 11th from the very start. Your interview with Arnaud de Borchgrave of United Press International was uh, published on September 26, 2001, in which you said that 9/11 was an inside job. You knew immediately. What made it obvious to you that the perpetrators were not, in fact, Islamist terrorists? Well, the kind of job that was uh, done, I think, it was far too sophisticated for a man sitting in a in a hovel or in a cave in Afghanistan. He could not have possibly pulled it off. You know, in the intelligence craft, uh, one begins to understand. Uh, you don't necessarily have to look at the facts at the time. but the circumstances tell you quite clearly and vividly what is possible and what is not possible and i think we always when we judge the information it is on that scale that we judge whether it is possible plausible or it is not plausible 
in my opinion, it was not plausible because uh, the information that was coming in for aircraft, uh, suddenly their transponders don't work. And they were uh, heading, for instance, the first strike uh, against the Twin Tower came from an aircraft which took off from Logan Airfield in Boston. And it was in flight for 37 minutes. That's too long a period of time. And you compare this, uh, the, the, the past hijacking incidents in America, the longest that the U.S. aircraft ever took to be on the wing of the hijacked aircraft was nine minutes. And in this case, for 37 minutes, it was in flight. And nothing was done on a change course. And similarly for the other aircraft. Then there are other many unexplained questions. I don't want to go into the details of it, but those questions still remain the questions. No answer has been found. And what I would say is that why no heads were rolled from the uh, air traffic control system? I mean, tell me if you know that uh, anybody was punished for for committing such huge mistakes, not reporting that these aircraft were or had changed the flight uh, course. And similarly, the, it was a huge intelligence failure. Nobody was taken to task for it. And, uh, the uh, man, George Tennant, I think, was then the head of the ISI, uh, of the CIA. Uh, he and uh, the head of the FBI, uh, they were allowed to stay on in the job. It's never done because somebody has to be found to have made a mistake and somebody's head is to, is to be rolled. That wasn't done. Then this was a grand job which was carried out by only 19 persons. Now tell me there would be a logistic tale. There would be those people who would harbor them. There would be people who would finance them, take them, transport them. And uh, there would be a command and control system that they would have set up. Not a single person on American soil has been arrested. So these people, did they descend directly from the heavens to come and uh, carry out this kind of a job? So these were the questions that I asked, and various journalists from America were visiting me at that time. And when I posed these questions, nobody was prepared to answer this question. And when I asked, what is the reason why you're not answering this question? He says, it's unpatriotic. Because if you remember, the Patriotic Act was slapped immediately after that by Ashcroft. And Patriotic Act had gagged, in a way, the expression of American public opinion. So these were the facts when we cobble them together, when you, you correlate them, and you come to the conclusion that this was perhaps an inside job. You worked with Osama bin Laden in the past when you were head of the Pakistani ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence, during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Did you maintain contact with him in any way between those years and 2001? Now, this is where I have uh, to pick up Kajal with uh, the report of uh, Bosch Graf, because I think, uh, in my opinion, uh, he's a dishonest journalist, and I suspect that he's been working for some intelligence agency, possibly the CIA. Because, A, he did not come for interview. He did not say that he wanted to interview me. He came for a courtesy call on me, a social call, along with a Pakistani-American, his name was uh, Hamar Turabi, and they came to just uh, discuss things with me. And much of the things that he has written, correct, I, I, we discussed those. 
and he was taking uh, notes on a small piece of paper. I didn't mind that. Uh, but uh, two things that he has said in, in the initial part of the report, he said that I have been meeting the Al-Qaeda operators in European countries. That is utterly wrong. It's false. And the second part is that Osama bin Laden swore to me on the holy book uh, after 9-11 that he had not done this job. Now, this is again false. Now, this was my conjecture to say that Osama was not responsible for it. But uh, I did not say that because I had not met Osama bin Laden. I met him only twice. Uh, that was after my retirement from the ISI and the Army uh, in December 93 and again in uh, in November 94. Two times when I went to attend a, a religious conference uh, in Sudan, in Khartoum, that is uh, when Afghan Mujahideen leaders and all the others who are now part of the Northern Alliance, they were all with me, and uh, he had invited us to uh, to dinner on the first occasion and also on the second occasion. And uh, that was all. It was a sort of, sort of a social meeting that I had. I have not met Osama bin Laden before that or after that, and did not work with any one of them. We worked only with the Afghans. We never worked with any other nationalities. We knew that other nationality, the youth from the other nationalities, they were also participating in the resistance, but they were never in contact, uh, and Osama bin Laden was not in contact with the ISI or with me personally, not at all. He was uh, nothing as far as I'm concerned, because he was only helping on his own with his machinery, um, because he um, owned a construction company, Ben Laden Company, and with his money and with his fighters, etc. But that was none of our business, but because we have left it open. And this was uh, uh, in agreement with the CIA and with the Saudi intelligence, because these three intelligence services, the ISI, CIA, and the Saudi, they were the ones who were actively participating in supporting the Afghan Jihad. But other intelligence agencies of the European countries of the free world at that time, they were helping in an oblique way, uh, like the British MI6 and the French intelligence, the German intelligence, all of them. They were helping, but uh, obliquely rather, not directly. These three intelligence agencies that I mentioned, they were directly helping them. So Osama bin Laden was never introduced to me except by the... Uh, the CIA operators, they used to talk uh, very high about him, as if some uh, prince or some um, uh, superhuman had descended from the heavens and he was helping them with his own money. They used to sing praises for him. They went, used to actually romanticize him. But these were the Americans, not others, not my my officers. My officers had only heard about him. And they would talk about him, but not in those terms as the Americans did. Americans were full of praise for him. So Osama bin Laden was not a demon at that time. Uh, and he was on his own. And he was working not only with one Mujahideen party or one Mujahideen group. He was working with everybody. Well, I see. So uh, Osama bin Laden then... Uh was working with the Americans and others against the Soviets, but not necessarily with uh, with the Pakistani ISI? No, 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 not at all. Not at all with us. 
I mean, Osama bin Laden was fighting the Soviets. He was injured, I'm told, twice uh, in battle with the Soviet uh, troops. And uh, he, he helped the Mujahideen a lot. But uh, he was not working with the ISI. This is absolutely wrong. I mean, record will tell you, the CIA record will tell you that this is not the correct perception. Uh, in the United Press International interview, you said that Osama bin Laden uh, could not and would not have carried out the 9-11 attacks. What made you certain of that? Well, as I told you, that uh, because Osama bin Laden could not from Afghanistan, where he was already, the sanctions, if you remember, on Afghanistan, there were sanctions imposed in those days. I think it was in November 2000 that uh, Afghanistan came under sanctions. And uh, Osama bin Laden did not have the wherewithal, did not have the means to carry it out, because this was a very highly sophisticated operation. And uh, what is more, Osama has not been charge-sheeted so far. He has not been indicted, and there has been no trial of him in absentia. Then there was uh, Mullah Omar, he said, bring the evidence against uh, Osama bin Laden. We will try him. We will try him in... Uh, Afghanistan in our court, and you can watch, or he can be taken to the UN compound in Kabul, which is a neutral ground. A court can be held there, and he can be tried. Third, he can be taken to a third country and be tried there. But their condition was only that he should be tried by a Sharia court. Why was this offer not taken up? And he was initially a Saudi citizen where Sharia uh, laws operate, why was he not taken to Saudi Arabia and tried there? If he was guilty, he would have gone to the gallows, and if he was not guilty, he would have been let off. And you would be looking in the other direction, who has done that? But I think it was being willfully, uh, those offers were re being rejected because uh, somebody else had done the job and they wanted to hide it. The hunt for bin Laden was, and still is, one of the official reasons for U.S. operations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But there is a lot of evidence that he is long dead, and almost none that he is alive. Do you know if he is dead or alive? I have no idea, because this is a $5 million question, really. And uh, to be honest, I don't know. I have no idea whether he's dead or alive because initially he said that he was on dialysis, and such a man does not live too long, uh, that's for sure, especially in the condition in which he was uh, uh, inhabiting. So really, uh, it's very difficult. I, I can't answer that question, uh, but uh, it is. it serves as a very good excuse that uh, I, I feel that these uh, hard-boiled cold warriors uh, the Rumsfelds and Richard Armitages and uh, Dick Cheney and uh, Dick Cheney to top it all and uh, George Bush, who was one of the worst presidents, in my opinion, in, in America. And uh, they were out to conquer the world. They had larger-than-life objectives, and it was a good excuse for them. And if they portray Osama bin Laden as still alive, then they would... Uh, continue to, to to operate in the fashion that they have to because you see here was a case if they had planned it's hypothetically if they had planned that they were to do certain things reach out to the ventilation oil fields keep china out give a wider security shield to 
uh, to state of Israel and extend the Middle Eastern war zone or the security zone to include areas of Pakistan. And Condoleezza Rice, if you remember, had said the extended or larger Middle East. So this was the term that they had used. Uh, and, of course, corporate America's uh, desires and wishes. Let's say if these were the objectives, would they have gone to the American people and asked for this kind of operation in a vote? Would they go and get the opinion of the people of America and win a vote in support of it? Absolutely not. So they had to do something extraordinary uh, in order to be able to fulfill their own private agenda. Now, I wouldn't say private of one individual, but a group of people who come up with an agenda and because uh, President Clinton had left heaps of money uh, in the American coffers, and they were feeling upbeat that now with this money we can do things that we have not been able to do, let's say, earlier on in 1991 when um, uh, Iraq was struck. And uh, similarly, because then at Basiria Bridges, just short of Baghdad, the forces were pulled back, and a lot of people were very unhappy. Uh, they were uh, they were quoted as as saying that they were not happy, and now this was an unfinished agenda for them, and they wanted to finish it. So this is a hypothetical uh, conjecture which I am making, but it has uh, some kind of uh, uh, substance behind it. I mean, I'm not simply talking uh, uh, out of my hat. Uh, I have read a good deal about it, and I think this this is what they wanted to do. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, Afghanistan-Pakistan Imbroglio. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, General Ghul, you've uh, sort of just answered this question, but let me go ahead and ask you anyway if you have anything to add. If 9-11 was an inside job and the invasion of Afghanistan was planned long before and then launched when the 9-11 New Pearl Harbor provided a pretext, then what is the real reason for the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and its expanding operations in Pakistan and Central Asia? Well, actually, the 9-11 created an atmosphere of sympathy for America around the world. Uh, This kind of sympathy they they had never seen before. And it created an enormous amount of anger inside the American people. Their psyche was so jarred and it was so lacerated that they wanted their pound of flesh. And now this was a good excuse to go for Afghanistan. But soon they realized that Afghanistan was not the real objective. So they switched their forces towards Iraq because Israel, state of Israel, wanted Iraq to be chastised more than anyone else. So they uh, diverted their attention. Uh, and now everyone says, uh, Afghanistan was your objective. This was your target. Why did you go to Iraq? So indeed, the objectives, like I've told you, these are the objective, the military people in, in, in America, the military commanders, the generals, the four stars and the three stars, they need to be asked several questions. Okay, uh, there was a group of people, George Bush's cronies or Dick Cheney's cronies and, and that group, 
uh, of the neocons, hard-boiled, wanted certain things, wanted to appropriate 21st century as the American century, Pax Americana, etc., etc. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, it's all right. I mean, a lot of other uh, superpowers have done that kind of thing. Russia made a mistake, uh, and they paid a very, very huge price for it also. Uh, similarly, in the past, many other powers, when they are at the pinnacle of their strength and power and reputation, they tend to make such mistakes. I think the imperial hubris, as it is called, is uh, it uh, sort of coaxes them into action. It uh, goads them into action. But here is where the military should have stood firmly. That is where I feel that these generals should be taken to task because there some generals should have the guts, the character to stand up and say that this is wrong. The objectives that you have selected for us, they are wrong objectives. They will not bring any good results to the country. But more than that, we will have a lot of our soldiers. My subordinates will be killed. Nobody spoke about the subordinates. Whether it was Iraq, two divisions were to go, one from Turkey and the other one was to go from Kuwait. Turkey did not allow, but Rumsfeld insisted go in. So if a pincer movement it is called in the in uh, the military terms it is called the pincer movement if the pincer movement was the design military design in the field then if only one pincer was going and second one not going at that time somebody should have stood up uh, whoever tommy franks or whoever was the man in charge and uh, he should have said, no, sorry, I will not do this. I am not prepared to launch this operation. Similarly, in Afghanistan, there is an admixture of objectives. It's not one objective. Look at this one. Uh, initially, they said, we will disperse Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda stands dispersed. Now, there are Leon Penata, the new uh, CIA boss. He has on record said that there are fewer than 60 to 100 al-Qaeda operators in this region that includes Pakistan and Afghanistan. Now, that many al-Qaeda operators may be found in any of the European countries. If the objective was to disperse al-Qaeda, then al-Qaeda is long gone from this area. They are now in the Red Sea area, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Chad, in uh, Central African Republic, and they are getting closer to their uh, strategic center of gravity. Strategic center of gravity is for them Middle East and the Palestine. Now, they have long gone from here, but the American forces are committed here. That's why there is a, a great weakness uh, which has begun to appear in that part of the world. And now, uh, if uh, that was one objective, now you change the objective. And I was horrified when uh, President Obama said that our objective, McChrystal's objective, was to reverse the momentum of Taliban. Now, where did it come? All of a sudden, this objective has cropped up. All the armies of the world have one standard principle of war. They call it the, the principles of war. The first principle of war for every army in the world, you ask any professional soldier, he'll tell you, is selection and maintenance of a single aim. And this selection and maintenance of a single aim has been violated with impunity. This principle has been violated. This is an immutable principle. 
but no general of america has stood up to the government to the politician and said that no we will we can't succeed and there are other aspects of uh, the war craft or military craft which has been uh, very very uh, blatantly they have been ignored and they have been uh, mutilated so uh, if you want i can uh, uh, i can hold a discussion on your radio or somewhere else i can hold a discussion with uh, any of your generals and ask them these questions and i'm sure they'll not be able to answer my questions the united states itself uh is bombing pakistan from aerial drones killing hundreds if not thousands of pakistanis and it has special forces and contract mercenaries operating on the ground inside Pakistan with the evident approval of the Pakistani ruling regime what can you tell us about these various us operations well the us security contractors were deployed here in very large numbers it was blackwater first which had been booted out of uh, iraq because of uh, illegal actions and killings uh then they changed their name to z worldwide services uh, but they continued because i think dick cheney was supporting them he may have had some share in this also but he was supporting them and uh, dick cheney was calling the shots not uh, george bush at that time and uh, pervez musharraf who was a dictator he entered into a secret agreement that agreement still remains a secret so what kind of democracy uh, the first thing that we have to ask what kind of democracy is functioning in pakistan because dictator is gone and democracy has come but those secret deals are still very secret and we are allowing the americans uh, to operate in this uh, area i think uh, as you said about drone attacks uh, that has done a tremendous amount of damage to pakistan because our tribal people have an honor code which is called pakhtun wali pakhtun tribes have this honor code in this revenge is one of the thing this is not islamic at all but this predates islam and this sentiment is very strong the tradition is very strong and a young man cannot enter his village go to his area or even be allowed to to have uh, a wife if he doesn't take his revenge so these people were motivated because drones were attacked hit them kill innocent people and i think according to a very conservative estimate more than 2500 innocent people have been killed while the al qaeda operators according to american claims who died in these attacks is no more than 20 so if 20 versus 2500 so you can imagine that what kind of rage and anger this would have aroused and uh, these people started attacking cities of pakistan public places and military installations they captured military headquarters at one time and they they were all killed uh, but uh, they caused a lot of damage we lost from lieutenant general one of them and very good good one uh, in my opinion and a lot of uh, some generals brigadiers and down the line uh, we lost nearly 3000 soldiers in these attacks as well as our operations in the tribal areas the americans would keep on demanding do more do more do more they're still doing that 
and uh, this is where Pakistan stands, really, torn between the American demand and agenda and the will of people of Pakistan. So I think democracy has been crucified uh, on on the altar of uh, American wishes and, and their demand. And their very nebulous agenda, what they wish to do. So I think uh, drones have been one single factor, uh, which is uh, which is awful. And let me tell you one thing. Uh, it was uh, on 30th of October 2006 when the American drone struck a small little place in uh, Bajor Agency, which is in our northwest, and they killed in the VR of uh, 30th. Uh, October, 82 uh, small children uh, from ages 6 to about 18. And uh, Pervez Musharraf said, no, it is we who carried out, because at that time he wanted to hide this fact that the Americans were carrying out the attacks. And these 82 innocent children were killed uh, for no rhyme or reason. Um, and uh, I went to the Supreme Court of Pakistan uh, asking them, with a, with a writ petition, and uh, this was uh, uh, only from myself. Nobody joined me up on this. But I went to the Supreme Court. And on 5th of March 2007, Supreme Court ruled that we cannot ask the government of Pakistan to wage war against America. I simply wanted that there should be some arrangement for protection of these people who are citizens of Pakistan. And we, we are not uh, bothering about them. Now, this is, uh, this is where the dichotomy lies. The result was, because of these drone attacks, Pakistan was really ripped apart, and it is still being done so. So this is a, a terrible price that Pakistan is paying. It's not only in that way only, in the human casualties, uh, but uh, all, more than uh, 4,000 people, civilians have been killed in this. I mentioned about the army, 3,000, around 3,000. And those civilians who were killed in tribal areas, in addition, 2,500 of them have been killed there. It's a very huge price. But there is also an economic price which uh, says, according to a very conservative estimate, $58 billion Pakistan has lost in this. But the trauma, the psychological price that we have paid, the nation is split apart. It is very Shattered. It is. It is in a in a state of trauma. So that price is incalculable. So really, Pakistan for being the frontline state for America in, uh, in this uh, dirty war uh, has has paid an enormous price. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Interservices Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show: Afghanistan, Pakistan imbroglio. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, now, General Gould, you have started to answer this next question, but maybe I can uh, you can elaborate. At the same time, the U.S. is pressuring the Pakistani government and military to carry out ground operations in Swat, South and North Waziristan, and other parts of the country bordering on Afghanistan which have killed, wounded, or displaced many thousands of people as well. It seems as if the Pakistani government is fighting a proxy war for the U.S. against its own population. How can this be? Or is the Pakistani army just pretending to try to root out the resistance to U.S. occupation of Afghanistan? Where will this lead? 
Well, it will lead to nowhere, to tell you honestly, because it, you, are, you are right, it's a proxy war. And the people of Pakistan are not convinced, even though our propaganda machinery, the government's propaganda machinery, and of course, I'm sure, sponsored by the American money, uh, they have been hard put to say that this is our war. But even if we say now this is our problem, if it's not our war, it has been dragged into our backyard because of the American dictate. So uh, really, to begin with, it would have paid Pakistan very well if we had stayed neutral. But we are giving the supply lines are running through Pakistan, long supply lines. Now, they have been disrupted somewhat by the floods. But uh, as you know, that uh, no armies can fight without proper supply line being maintained. And at the same time, Pakistan is being bashed from every direction. And this uh, proxy war is beginning to now tell on the health of the nation, and perhaps Pakistan will now, uh, as a result of the latest flood, may even drift towards a revolution on the style of Iran, uh, because people are sick and fed up with the corruption of the government, with the way the government is siding with the aggressors. Now, Americans are viewed as aggressors, and latest surveys have said that 68% Pakistanis downright hate America. Now, that is not just dislike, but hate America. And they consider them the enemies of Pakistan. That's a very large figure, if you come to think of it. And I'm sure because a lot of people in the villages in Pakistan, they are so ignorant that they couldn't have even understood the question when somebody posed to them whether you like America or not like America. You won't even know what America is. But uh, this is, uh, mostly the survey has been carried out in the uh, urban areas, and, and if 68% people hate America, then this is something to be worried about, because we are closest ally of America, doing the dirty work for them, paying a huge price for them, and yet people of Pakistan hate them. That means if this uh, dichotomy or if this contradiction continues to persist, then a time will eventually come when there will be eruption, a social eruption. And also because the floods are not being managed. Of course, the floods are of enormous proportion. No government, no matter how good it was, it would not have been able to handle this situation. It is of biblical proportion, and uh, the kind of effort that Pakistan can put up and the friends that they are coming up with, it is rather slow and tardy, the support that is, uh, and relief work that is going on. And again, people of Pakistan are so suspicious about the performance and the, uh, the honesty of their government. They don't trust their own government. And the NGOs, when they come into, because when donors think that government cannot handle the money or would be corrupt, then they start relying upon the NGOs. But the NGOs themselves, they funnel away much of the money that is given for relief work. So this is a quandary in which Pakistan is struck today. Yes, we are uh, a very resilient nation. There is no doubt about it. And I think uh, over a period of time we'll, we'll come out of it. But I think the old structure, the British system that was left of governance in Pakistan is now crumbling. And uh, if one push is given to it, by a mass uprising, then I think it will uh, simply uh, be washed away. So Pakistan stands on the crossroads of history today, and uh, I don't know which way we will turn. Uh, we require 
honest leadership. We require people uh, of uh, sagacity, of wisdom. But uh, how can their wisdom work here when Americans come with their own agenda, force it down our throat? And you mentioned about these uh, security operators. Now, these security operators are being deployed in Balochistan, unfortunately. They were in our tribal areas first, but now they are being deployed in Balochistan because I think there is some kind of uh, scheming going on for Iran because Iran shares a 900-kilometer-long border with Pakistan. It's an open border. And uh, those areas that of uh, Iran which adjoin Pakistan, they are Sunni-dominated. So uh, that is Americans and their allies, and British, I would say not other allies, but British are in collusion with them, and they are trying to use this as a jumping-off pad. This is going to be disastrous. Uh, at this stage, when Americans are already, their power is on the wane, their military failures are all too obvious in Afghanistan, and Obama has already set the date for a drawdown in Afghanistan. To embark on a new venture, it would not only destroy Pakistan, but it will certainly bring a great deal of grief to America itself. The Pakistani political situation is extremely complex. Is the civilian government really in control of the military? And within both sectors, there are profound policy struggles. Do the anti-U.S. forces within Pakistan have a significant chance of coming to power? The civilian government is not actually a democratically elected government. That's only a farce. It is an arrangement which was slapped on Pakistan. It was foisted on Pakistan as a result of the NRO deal that took place between Pervez Musharraf and Benazir, late Benazir Bhutto. Uh, and uh, the government is now following that uh, arrangement. Benazir Bhutto is gone, but uh, her place has been taken up by uh, Mr. Asif Ali Zardari, who is the president of Pakistan. And uh, in this way, this is uh, it's not the will of people of Pakistan, really, uh, which is reflected in the state policies. The military is the only solid institution, although there was much anger against the military in the past, uh, and in some areas of the tribal belt there is still that anger uh, rampant. But uh, by and large, military's performance the past two and a half years has been very good. Military has distanced itself from the state policies, and they are not uh, dictating to the civilian government. But unfortunately, the civilian government just doesn't seem to pick off ground. They are not being able to deliver on any front whatsoever. And they are so much uh, demonized because of their corruption in the eyes of the public. They simply cannot deliver. So they are looking to the army. Now, this is where the delicate problem arises. The delicate point is that should military once again intervene in the Pakistani politics and take reins of the governance directly in its own hand, or should the civilian authority be allowed to continue? Now, Supreme Court is one which has, because a, a huge struggle was waged uh, to install the Supreme Court back into its position, which had been demolished by Pervez Musharraf. So Supreme Court is giving judgments which are not being obeyed by the government, because most of these judgments are against the government itself. And this has left us completely in a limbo, 
because if Supreme Court is non-functional, if the parliament is sinecure, and if the people of Pakistan are nowhere, where should they go? What tree should they cry up to? I mean, they have to have some kind of a space for themselves. And that's why I'm saying that situation is so bad, that if military jumps into it once again, like in the past, then it will be a disaster. And if military stays away, then people of Pakistan will rise to take their own revenge or, or have their own will. And that is where Pakistan stands today. It's a difficult situation, but uh, I'm sure that people of Pakistan, once they rise, and they will probably rise in anger this time, and I don't know how the military can then not come in front of them, but military must not come in front, because the military is also, bulk of the soldiery, is drawn from the deprived classes, from the middle classes, lower middle classes, and from those working classes, uh, which are, uh, normally come from rural areas of Pakistan. And they are hugely deprived. So if military and the angry masses ever come face to face, then this will be a disaster and this will be a revolution or a civil war. I, I hope things go right for Pakistan and uh, some people have got to put their heads together, honest people in Pakistan. And America has to understand, West has to understand our position, where we stand to, today. But unfortunately, the West is leaning too much towards India, which is, has not given up its belligerent stance towards Pakistan. There is the Kashmir movement going on right on our doorsteps. Afghanistan is about to settle one way or another. If uh, Obama keeps to his word, then I think the drawdown in Afghanistan will begin in uh, July next year or even earlier. I think now there is no point in keep on losing men in this month alone, which has not gone out yet. More than 40 American soldiers have been killed in Afghanistan. According to the reports, although those reports which are filtering out of Afghanistan privately, they place the figures at much uh, higher numbers. Uh, and then this Kashmir movement, uh, it is on the boil. People are out in the streets. Intifada is going on. Kashmiri youth is up in arm. And uh, the uh, Indian military commander has said that, look, you have to find a political solution for it. I think a very wise uh, and a very um, sagacious advice to, to his government. Uh, and then India in, in itself, there are huge contradictions in India. Um, uh, I don't know whether you would want me to discuss those or not, but those contradictions are foretelling a future for India, which is none too healthy, uh, uh, and therefore Pakistan is surrounded in, from all directions. The only solace that we have is from the side of China. China, uh, to the north of us, is stable, is uh, prospering, it is uh, a good friend of Pakistan. But as I told you, Iran is in problem because of the uh, designs of America and more than America, designs of Israel. Afghanistan is where it is, and Kashmir is going on. Uh, and, and I think one way or another it will, will have to settle. India has its own problem, but uh, India is not giving up its very intransigent uh, stance towards Pakistan. So all these put together, when you correlate them, Pakistan's situation becomes very explosive, very volatile. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. 
Today's show, Afghanistan-Pakistan imbroglio. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you explain your understanding of the many bombings in Pakistan, which have killed so many, which are always described as terrorist attacks by Pakistani Taliban and related organizations? Could these bombings be, in fact, perpetrated by U.S. special forces or mercenaries to destabilize? A lot of of Pakistani believe that it is the handiwork of the mercenaries. Mercenaries have a bad, and this is a very bad thing to do, frankly. I know that some, um, somebody came, uh, we had served together, after all, I have lots of friends in America, and I consider myself a very good friend of America. I, they, they consider me an enemy, and they would not miss an opportunity to hit me and my family, my family's business, etc. They have done everything that they could. Well, I say, okay, they are misguided, and they will come to their senses someday, because I am a friend of America when I say that you have to do the right thing. I tell you, very early in the war, someone came, I forget the name now, and he said that we have decided that uh, to mix the CIA operators along with the uh, Marines and military forces uh, with mercenaries, what was known as probably Orange Force, Delta Force, Orange Force, Navy SEAL, so create a mixture of forces which we'll call them special forces. Special forces will operate incognito, they would uh, operate in CVs, and I said this is going to be a disaster. This is what is general. What is your opinion? I said it's going to be a disaster. Never mix the mercenaries with the regular troops. Regular troops are clean. They are trained to fight in a certain way on the battlefield, and they are honourable. They are very noble. Mercenaries look only for money. Their motivation is none other than money. And similarly, now the WikiLeaks. I have, uh, in, with regard to Pakistan, the kind of reports which have come and mentioned me, so I'm, I'm directly affected. I know that I had not done all those things. Then why was this being reported? It is simply because somebody was interested in making dollars, and they made dollars by paper milling. Paper milling is a term which we use when you put up the make-believe reports. They are not true. But they look so plausible that the recipient thinks that it is true. Now, this is the kind of thing happening because this is old buddy cronyism, which is working now. You employ the intelligence people, spent out, burnt out intelligence operators. They are being paid huge salaries and, on top of it, allowances to operate in clandestine manner. And they have been mixed with the regular soldiers. Now, this is disastrous for the regular soldiery because these people cannot give anything. They cannot deliver, except that they would bring a a great deal of harm by killing civilian, innocent, soft targets. So the soft targets are being hit. Now, for instance, Benazir. Now, that's very high-profile murder. In that, I am convinced that this was the job of uh, the mercenaries. And it was very sophisticated because they made sure that... uh, uh, the attack came from all the three sides. The sniper who actually caused the death of Benazir, there was a bomb blast and there was a pistol shot, all three. Now, that is the, that's the way the mercenaries operate. They want to make sure that the target does not escape. And uh, this is the double check. And this was exactly the pattern was the same as in case of General Zeolhak's plane crash 
you know in that there was a device which went off inside a nerve gas device there was an explosion in the fuselage and there was a rocket attack against the aircraft also towards the the tail of the aircraft so from three different direction to make sure that the target is not missed this is a mercenary style of doing things and i think uh, mercenaries are operating inside pakistan in fact new york times carried a report sometimes back that 50 small units were operating in the tribal areas of pakistan what were they doing there with whose authority has congress allowed them similarly this task force 373 which uh, has been revealed by the wikileaks that it has been operating in afghanistan and they have caused no less than 20000 civilian casualties innocent people being killed now this task force has to be now these american people have to raise this question who authorized this task force what is the composition of the task force does it include the mercenaries in it i'm sure they do because the ruthless kind of killing that they are going Malai was just one incident in Vietnam if you remember way back in in the 1960s and the american people were up in arms and there was a movement 1 million march which was known as moratorium and which brought about the withdrawal of american forces from uh, vietnam it's a similar situation which is now brewing up in afghanistan and in parts of pakistan so i think uh, american people have to come up and raise the question ask their government many very many questions are really there everything is being done in a clandestine manner what kind of a democracy is america practicing if things are being done secretly from the public eye although we say that there is a freedom of expression in america but what is the need for this patriotic law what is the need for tutoring or embedded journalists all these things are raising questions about america's health and the democratic health of the america which is very important for the rest of the world i can assure you who killed uh, benazir bhutto and why why would her husband be preferred over her for the presidency yeah i know uh, this is uh, i've been saying and people say, look this man is fantastic he's talking about things which uh, are outlandish but i tell you is it not a fact that benazir after having signed the, the the agreement nro with pervez musharraf where she was to work uh, under the shadow of pervez musharraf who would have been the president in cvs and benazir as the prime minister would she accept anybody in his right mind can think that a dictator like pervez musharraf who is given so much to so full of himself that he would allow a leader like benazir to operate under him and benazir would operate under him so abinisho from the beginning i think this was a faulty formulation but uh, benazir did because she was so desperate to come back to pakistan that she, she signed on the uh, agreement which we don't know what it was but when she came here uh, she was subjected to a terrorist attack and uh, immediately the blame was put on the uh tribal areas of pakistan these that these mujahideen they had done this job now who wants pakistan army to act in tribal areas obviously the americans have always wanted so obviously and and the man that who was named he is now dead and gone batullah masood he said ah, we are not involved in it we don't kill women just forget about it 
but then thereafter benazir left and she went away uh, exactly on the 3rd of october when parvez musharraf because he got very angry with the supreme court he applied the second martial law on 3rd of november in the evening 4th of november she took the first flight back to pakistan and she said privately to the people that that agreement is no more because in this there was no clause uh, indicating that uh, he could have the authority to impose martial law once again and she went straight to the chief justice's house which was barricaded at that time and stood there and said that i will hoist the flag pakistan flag on your house she made that promise nagraponte was then john nagraponte uh because he was, uh, was uh, i think the in charge security he came rushing into pakistan fixed up a meeting date with him uh, and in islamabad uh, but uh, when she and he spoke she was in lahore at that time and uh, he told her to come and meet him in islamabad she refused to meet him she said i will not meet you and then thereafter she was a different benazir she looked she was glowing she was blooming and she was saying i and she sent me a message he says general your name was put there on insistence of the americans you know americans will be always they 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 have no parallel in alienating their own friends they made her put uh, in that letter that she wrote to pravez musharraf that she uh, is under risk uh, from such and so and so and in that in the end my name was also added i sent her a legal notice and i said now you have to prove but she sent me the message back said don't worry you don't have to get upset about it because it is your old friends who have made me do that and i was so desperate to get to pakistan that i obliged now after this whole thing happened and the election campaigning was going on and and i kept on sending her messages that look you have been is a very unkind cut that you have delivered me so she sent me a message that i would come to your house and i would apologize and i would explain things but you should not get upset i feel so free and i also now know what americans are up to and i am closer to your line of thinking now this dr shahid masood who is one of the tv hosts he has given it he has given the evidence in public and there are three other witnesses which i have if ever there is a trial held i will go and depose those people will come and they have promised to me that they will depose in front of that court or whichever body holds that trial so she was a different person altogether and imagine now from the american point of view if they wanted to keep pakistan completely under their thumb and wanting them to continue marching along the dotted line then a person like benazir the head of the most largest political party uh, enlightened and uh, twice uh, prime minister of pakistan and daughter of uh, mr zulfikar ali bhutto she could not have been tolerated by the americans if she had become rebellious there was no way but to remove him it's as simple as that and i think they did that and uh, and you will see in years to come 
they themselves will come out with this story that they had to eliminate her. Well, General Gould, what are your uh, feelings about the United States? Really, honestly, I tell you, with all my heart, I want to help American people come to the right conclusions and take the right actions for their own sake, if not for us. We are, in any case, uh, downtrodden. We are finished. We have, I don't know what will happen to Pakistan tomorrow. But uh, why should America? Because if something happens to America, the whole world will be torn apart. Because America must remain stable. And it, it must remain uh, uh, altruistic and noble America. I want to see noble America, not rogue America. But there is certain rogue elements, a dark impulse, as I call it, in the American policy making, which has to be uh, taken out. Which has, this, this is a kind of venom that exists somewhere in the veins of the American society. That has to be taken out. General Hamid Ghul, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with General Hamid Ghul. Today's show has been Afghanistan, Pakistan, Imbroglio. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI, from 1987 to 1989, during the fateful period of Afghan Jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. He attended Staff College Camberley in the United Kingdom. As a young officer, he attended the U.S. Pacific Army's Intelligence School in Okinawa, Japan. General Gould faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad, protesting against the attempts to dismiss Chief Justice Chowdhury. He has written hundreds of columns, mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. Visit his website at www.generalhamidghul.com. That's General H-A-M-I-D-G-U-L dot C-O-M. There is some information there in English. Today's show was produced by Todd Fletcher and Bonnie Faulkner. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L k-n-e-r at yahoo.com visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org that's g-u-n-s-a-n-d-b-u-t-t-e-r dot o-r-g hey yo these are some serious times that we live in g and our new world order is about to begin you know what i'm saying now the question is are you ready the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the look.
police. You dig me? 